two exciting bits of scripture today. The first one is found on page 1102, if you're following me in the church Bibles. It's chapter 9 of the book of Acts. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus, from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come into the place, place hands on him to receive his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered in it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who has appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. What a wonderful story. And now we're looking at Luke 19. Sorry, 18. Let's get this right, Baker. It's the story of the blind beggar, and it's on page 1053, starting at verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. 
When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he recovered his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Praise God. This is God's word. Uh, Yeah, good morning. Uh, Okay, let's just pray first, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that all scripture is God-breathed, and I pray that this morning your anointing would rest on me to open your word. Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear and understand and soften our hearts, Lord God, that we might not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm only really going to be looking at a couple of things from uh, the uh, passage in Acts, uh, from chapter 9, uh, Saul's conversion. And I just want to start off by saying that for me personally, uh, my favourite biblical character is without a doubt Saul. Uh, he is just such an amazing guy. The things that he went through, the way that he suffered for the gospel, I just find so inspiring. And when I measure myself against him, I just feel like a spiritual pygmy, to be quite honest. Uh, he is just, he's just an amazing guy. And so I feel quite, quite honoured, really, and quite uh, pleased that uh, I'm going to be doing this, this passage. Uh, there's so many facts and figures that really I could throw out to you about Saul and his trip to Damascus and how far is Damascus from Jerusalem and there's a debate on whether or not Saul was actually riding a horse or was he walking to Damascus and uh, you know how many books in the Bible did he write and what was his inside leg measurement and what shoe size did he take but there's a thing called Google have you heard of Google so I'm not going to bore you with all of those things because you can just Google it and you can find out all of these things for your own personal edification and pleasure and encouragement. Uh, I'm not really one for sort of facts and figures anyway. I quite enjoy it. Uh, I'm a little bit sort of anal in that respect. But we've only got 15 to 20 minutes, so I really don't want to get into all of that. Google it. It's quite interesting. It's a good little study. But I've had a couple of months to really think about what God wants me to say today. And I think it's really important that rather than try to sort of systematically go through every verse, for me as a person, I like to pray and ask God, what do you actually want to say to the congregation today? Because I believe that God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's not just the logos, it's not just the written word, it's the rhema word of God. Because God wants to speak into our lives right here, right now, to give us encouragement, to challenge us, to edify us, 
So really what I'm more interested in is what is God wanting to speak to us about today? What is, what is relevant to us today in our situation, in our context? And I've read this passage probably every day for the last couple of months. I've been reading it and reading it and reading it and asking God to sort of give me a couple of things. And there's two things in particular that I really feel sort of like settled in my heart in terms of what I feel God wants to speak to us about today. Uh, So forgive me if I bypass a lot of this passage because I'm only really going to settle on two things in particular. And uh, hopefully uh, I've heard right and you will be encouraged and hopefully challenged by... uh, by what I want to share. So I'm just going to drop straight down to verse uh, 4 to begin with. So Saul's on his way to Damascus. It says, A bright light from heaven flashed around him and his companions. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's interesting that you know, Jesus actually takes this personally. You know, when a child of God is, is persecuted, Jesus is persecuted. You know, when you speak a word against the child of God, you're speaking a word against Jesus. You know, I remember times when I was a kid when, you know, there'd be like this thing in the playground where you'd say, my dad's bigger than your dad. And the kid would say, no, my dad's, big, my dad's harder than your dad. My dad could beat you. Well, our dad is the hardest dad that there is. Our heavenly father is the biggest dad that there is. And it encourages me to sort of uh, think to myself that God loves us so much that when we're persecuted, when we're spoken down to, when we're treated abysmally, it affects Jesus. He takes it personally as well. So he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul says, I love this, who are you, Lord? So he asks the question and answers his own question in the same sentence. He says, who are you, Lord? And I find this really interesting because this is Saul of Tarsus, who by his own definition is a child of Abraham, a son of Abraham, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, studied under Gamaliel, one of the best teachers of the Torah there was. You know, it said of Gamaliel that he was the beauty of the law. You know, Saul's credentials were absolutely impeccable in terms of his religious background, in terms of his uh, uh, heritage. Everything about Saul, he, t- he could tick every box. And he, You know, during his studies, he would have known everything that there was to know about the scripture. You know, he could have spoken, he could have debated, he could have he could have answered questions. He was a rising star in the Pharisaical movement. He was someone that was really miles ahead. He was he was he was really doing so well. He was zealous for the law. He was zealous for the traditions of the Pharisees. So he knew his Bible inside out. And yet, when he meets the risen Christ, he says, Who are you, Lord? This is the Messiah who he meets on the road to Damascus, the one that the Jews are waiting for, the one that you would have thought that Paul would have recognized instantly. And yet, 
despite all of his learning, despite all of his background, despite all of the traditions, he asks this question, who are you? And so the challenge that I feel in my own life is, do I know God? Do I know Jesus? Because, you know, you might have gone to the best seminary, you might know your Bible, you might be religious, you might know everything there is to know about the Anglican church, etc., etc., etc. You can know all of that and yet miss the one thing that counts the most. And that's what it was with Saul. Saul knew everything and yet he knew nothing. Because the one thing that he missed, the one most important thing that he missed, is that he didn't know Jesus. He didn't know Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, we read this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What is the work of God? It's to know him and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's it in a nutshell. That is the work of God, to know the Father and the one whom he has sent, Jesus. It's Jesus who sets captives free. It's Jesus who gives sight to the blind. And Paul was someone who would have said that he could see. Yet here he is on the road to Damascus, exposed to that bright, shining light in the midday sun of a Middle Eastern desert. And it says that the, the light was shut so bright that it outshone the sun. And he was blinded, not because of darkness, but because of light. He was blinded by the light. There was a song that was like that once, wasn't there? I knew that some people of a certain generation would, would sort of instantly think of that as I came out with that phrase. So for all his credentials, for all of his learning, he didn't know who Jesus was. But he knows that he has met with the Lord. So the second thing I wanted to look at is this. I want to go down now into verse 9. It says that for three days Saul was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. And I was thinking about this and I was thinking I've never heard anyone talk about those three days. Because when we talk about Saul, we normally talk about the the shining light, etc., etc., and he's falling to the ground. But these three days, I think, are really significant in the story. You know, the Bible was full of pivotal moments when Christianity sort of kind of hung on that one pivotal moment. Of course, the, 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 the prime pivotal moment is the death and resurrection of Jesus, because without that, none of us would be here. And we know it's quite interesting these three days, because we know that Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, for three days and three nights. We know that Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights. But we don't often think about these three days. 
But for three days, I would suggest to you that Paul was going through his own personal resurrection. Because for those three days, the Bible tells us that he was blind and he couldn't see and he, couldn't, he didn't eat and he didn't drink. And I just wonder what was happening in those three days. So let me just throw out one or two suggestions. You see, it wasn't that long before, I think six to eight weeks before, that this Saul was giving his approval to the, the, the killing of the first martyr, Stephen. And it's interesting because Paul was there and he heard Stephen's sermon. So Paul wasn't completely unaware of what the Christian religion was, even though people weren't actually called Christians back then. They were called followers of the way. But it's amazing to think that Paul was there and he heard that amazing sermon, that majestic sermon where Stephen lays out the whole history of the, the God's dealing with the Israelites up until the present time and the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it says that Saul was there giving his approval to the stoning of Stephen, which kind of suggests to me that actually he was the man in charge. He was the man that was stood by the coats and watched as the stones hit their mark. And you know, that was such a momentous occasion because the Bible tells us that when Stephen looked up, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, which suggests to me that it was such a momentous occasion that even Jesus had to stand up He had a personal heavenly audience. And Paul was there, giving his approval to the murder of this man of God. And right now, Paul has met the Messiah in person. The one that the Jews were waiting for. And can you imagine the turmoil that's going through this man's whole body at this moment in time? His emotions and everything. I would suggest to you that... the. You know, when you're you're not looking at anything, if you're blind, then you've got all the time in the world to go through your life and think about the things that you've done, the things that you didn't do. And I kind of think that during that three days, God was putting Paul through the mill. Paul was grist to God's mill on that day. He was being hung out to dry. I, I would suggest that One of the things that was foremost in his mind was that whole scene being played out in front of him when he was there giving approval to the stoning of Stephen. I would suggest that he was thinking about the times that he persecuted the followers of the way, the followers of the Messiah, who he just met on the road to Damascus. And he must have been broken. Can you imagine the shame and the embarrassment? The sheer pride of the man... To think that he could do what he was doing. He was knocked off his high horse, whether literally or not, but certainly metaphorically. And this is God dealing with a man at the very elemental part of his being. And this is what God does when we meet him. This is what he does. Because this is what the new creation is. We don't talk very much about the new creation anymore. We don't talk very much about being born again anymore because being born again, even that phrase conjures up all of these negative thoughts. But I'm a born again Christian. And if people ask me, are you a Christian? I say, yeah, I'm a born again Christian. Jesus said that unless a man is born again, you don't enter into the kingdom of heaven anyway. You must be born again. 
Because without being born again, we are just degenerate human beings. We're made in the image and likeness of God, but there's no life of God in us. We're just souls. But we were made to have a relationship with Jesus. And when Jesus comes by the power of his Holy Spirit, he, he regenerates us. We become new creatures. Behold, the old has gone and the new has come. Now, for me, my personal experience of meeting with Jesus for the first time was a little bit like being on the road to Damascus in the sense that I wasn't really searching for God. Uh, I just went to a church service one evening and heard someone preach the gospel. Not long before that, I was fighting in pubs and everything. I went in an absolute unbeliever and a pagan and came out a couple of hours later a completely different person. I knew that I'd been born again, even though if you'd asked me at the time, I would not have been able to articulate that. And it took me about two years to actually get my head around what God had done in my life. And I know that there were times, especially on the night I first gave my life to Jesus Christ, I know there were times when God got hold of me and arrested my attention and got me to think about all the things that I'd ever done in my life. And it was so uncomfortable. When we talk about the presence of God, I think sometimes we trivialise it in the sense that, especially if you're a charismatic, you think that being in the presence of God is something that's meant to make you feel good about yourself, that gives you goosebumps. But let me tell you this, being in the presence of God can be a terrifying thing. It can be a terrifying thing. Because when God calls you out of darkness and into light, when he calls you for a mission, when he calls you and he, he brings you out of the situation that you're in and he, he places his hand on your life, he does not wink at sin. He does not tolerate it. Because to serve a holy God, he has to deal with the sin in our lives. And believe you me, there was a ton of sin in my life. And when confronted with the majesty and the holiness of God and looking at my own life, I just wanted to curl up and die. But God has to deal with it. And God had to deal with it with Saul. And so he takes him through this, this period of three days where he's just being completely opened up. And he's sitting in the presence of Almighty God. See, the presence of God changes everything. In the presence of God, there is power. And you know, the thing about Paul is, is that he wasn't really that much of an eloquent speaker, I don't think, because he said of the, to the Corinthian church, you know, when I came to you, I came in weakness and in trembling. But he had power because he'd been in the presence of God. And church, we need the presence of God. We can have our programs. We can have our methods. We can have our ways of doing things. We can have our traditions. We can have our heritage. But we need the power of God. Because it's what the world needs. The world needs to see a church on fire with the power of God. 
Because the power of God changes everything. The power of God changes lives. It sets captives free. It heals the sick. It binds up the brokenhearted. It, it proclaims release to the prisoner. It sets your feet upon a rock. Church, it's not religion that the world needs. It's the power of God. The, the, the area that we're in, this diocese of Southcote, or whatever it's Southcote, needs the power of God. Can you imagine what a church would be like if it was moving in the power of God? 13,000 people apparently live in this diocese. How many people are here today? Because they can't see the power of God. Because the church is just like the world. We walk like the world. We talk like the world. We look like the world. We watch the same television programs as the world. We get divorced the same as people in the world. Our relationships are the same. Our morality is the same. Why would anybody want to be a part of a church like that? But we're meant to be different. We're meant to be in the world, but not of it. We're meant to be a light in the darkness. Jesus is coming back again for his bride. He wants to come back to a church that's on fire. We talk about coming to church, we'll give you a warm welcome. There's too much warmth in the church. There's too much warmth. Jesus said, I'd rather you were hot or cold. Let's give people a hot welcome. But when they come in, they feel the presence and the anointing of God because people, that's the only way, that's the only way this world's ever going to be changed. That's the way the world is going to get changed is in the presence of God. And so often we seek God's hand but not his face. So often we want what he can give us. But when was the last time you sought God for who he is? Just for being in his presence. Just for being with him. So often when we pray, we just, it's just a list. God, can you do this for me? God, can you do that for me? Can you heal this person? That's all well and good. But you know, sometimes I think God would just want us to come into his presence and say, Father, I love you so much. Just thank you for who you are. Just thank you. Just thank you. Being in the presence of God is where we need to be. We need to know our God. See, Paul was a man that was marked by knowing Jesus. And he was a man marked by being in the presence of God. I want to do something now. I'm going to close. But I want, if you would like, because we need to make space, we need to make time. Can someone give me three minutes on a, on a clock? Anybody got a watch? Anything? Can someone time three minutes for me? Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. And for every day that Saul spent in that awesome, redeeming, restoring power of God, let's just spend three minutes now in his presence. And I want to ask God, by his Holy Spirit, to meet with us in his manifest presence. And I want to ask him to 
reveal to us those things in our lives that we need to get right. And if you don't know Jesus today, I want to ask God to use this three minutes as a way of convicting us in our sin. So can someone start the three minutes? Start now. <laughs>